and welcome to Booklist Shelf Care, the podcast, where we talk all things reader's advisory, collection development, and reference right into your little ears. I'm Booklist's own Susan McGuire, thrilled to be joining you on this journey. So I spend a lot of time on Twitter, probably more than I should, but that's not what we're here to talk about, okay? And recently I've been seeing a lot of capital B bad book takes. It's disrespectful not to finish a book. You shouldn't write a review on Goodreads or Amazon unless it's a good one. Or if you do give a book one or two stars, you have to explain why. Or, my favorite, is that checking out books from the library is stealing money from authors. That's right, by using the library, you're taking that author's sandwich and pulling it right out of her mouth and now she's starving. Don't you feel terrible? The lesson here is possibly that I should spend less time on Twitter. But for reals, as we all know, if you don't like a book, you don't have to finish it. You don't have to rate or review each book you read if you don't want to. And if you do want to, you can rate or review it however you want. And for the love of Pete, use your library. As much of library Twitter pointed out, the author was paid when the library bought the book. So don't worry about that. Just worry about reading or not reading whatever you want. Now, please bear with me as I make an awkward transition. One way to facilitate leisure reading is to have neat browsable shelves, and the best way to achieve that is through dedicated weeding. I spoke to Anna Mickelson and Aileen Maroney, two weeding superstars, about why it's so important and tips on how best to get it done. Then audio editor Heather Booth and I talk about what she's reading and listening to and how those experiences are different, but they're both reading, y'all. Enjoy these conversations, won't you? After these words from a friend. Say, do you like reading? Do you like hearing what authors have to say about their writing? Then you've just got to hear the Shelf Care interview. It's a quick conversation between a booklister and a book person about their work, their inspiration, and whatever else we can fit in under 15 minutes. Hear Maggie Reagan talk to Ibram X. Kendi and Jason Reynolds about Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You. Hear Ronnie Curry chat with Susan Mwadi Daraj and Simon Nurali about their series for young readers, Farah Rocks and Sadiq, or to Saba Tahir, Nicole Andelfinger, and Sonia Lau and their graphic novel, A Thief Among the Trees. Hear Julia Smith talk to Tracy Hecht about the Nocturnal series, and more. Can you believe there's more? You can find the Shelf Care interview right on this here podcast feed or wherever you listen to Booklist Shelf Care the podcast. Happy listening! Anna Mickelson is a reference librarian at the Springfield City Library in Springfield, Massachusetts, and Aileen Maroney is the head of reference at the Forbes Library in Northampton, Massachusetts. Together, they speak about weeding to libraries across the country. In addition to having four beloved household panthers, they foster kittens and cats in their home. So cute! The three of us got into the weeds about weeding, ha, huh? covering everything from why weeding is important to Henry James and macrame. You can find all of the titles we talked about and Anna and Aileen's contact information in the show notes on booklistonline.com shelf hyphen care. So I'm talking to Aileen Maroney and Anna Mickelson, but I'm going to let them introduce themselves because they have some exciting things to share with you. Okay. My name is Anna. I am a reference librarian at the Springfield City Library in Springfield, Massachusetts, not to be confused with many other Springfields, including Illinois. (laughs) We did a big project in which I deleted more than 12,000 items from our collection over the course of several years, but no one ever came and asked me where that book was that I had gotten rid of. And 
there are still many more that I need to get to. Yeah. And I'm Allie. I work at the Forbes Library in Northampton, Massachusetts. And I, at that location, instigated, coordinated, and participated in a five-year weeding project that removed over 50,000 items from our collections, including a quarter of the adult circulating nonfiction, and was only asked for one book that I had thrown away. That's not bad. Not a bad ratio. So since you guys hate books and love throwing them out, no, just kidding. Yeah. Oh my God, so much. <laughs> No, I know. I think probably everyone who's listening knows in their heads that weeding is like a really important part of managing a collection. But what to you guys is so great about weeding? So the question I would ask to to anyone who is working at a library is, is your library adding any books (laughs) to the collection? If yes. If yes, (laughs) then you need to get rid of books. That's unless your building is also just adding because right space is finite. Right. Yeah. It's pretty simple. No library is a TARDIS. Right. If you're a school library and maybe you're not adding books because of budget reasons, you still need to be getting rid of books that are outdated. They are gross. (laughs) They make your students not want to come into the library at all because they don't realize that the 21st century is 20% over. Right. Right. So our basic stand here is, you know, you love ordering books, but they have to go somewhere. So you need to get rid of books. So you guys talk about weeding with libraries all over the country, all different kinds of libraries. What do you see is a common mistake people make or what do you think holds people back from getting started with weeding? One of the questions that we have received more than once is, well, why can't we just keep this as a historical representation of what this thing was? Right. And my feeling about that is that you are not going home with each book that is checked out and putting it into historical context for your readers. So you don't know who's checking that book out and taking it home and is told as a young female presenting person that your greatest aspiration is to be a mommy. I think the most people think they don't have time to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, we librarians have like 5 million things we're trying to do in any given day. And like weeding is, it often falls to the bottom of the the heap. And it's really something that you can do just a little bit at a time. If that's all you've got, you don't have to say, I need to weed my entire collection. Here's my year long plan. You can do that. That works for you. But if, if you're not that kind of organized person, you can just go to the shelf and be like this and this and this and this, these all look pretty gross. I think I'm going to delete them. Right. Right. Because patrons use books and drop them in bathtubs. And you also walk your patrons to the shelf to help them find materials that they want. And almost invariably, you'll take them to the section they're looking for and you'll be like, oh, goodness, this should not be here. And you'll take a couple of books that you won't let the patron have. And then you give them the ones that they should have (laughs) because of the aforementioned out of date and crustiness right. reasons. And, and and if you have been adding books to your collection, but not waiting, then eventually you're going to get to the point where you can't put them on the shelf because there's not enough space. That's an easy, then you can attack that and be like, well, I guess I have to weed this. So I will 
do it because I'm forced to. Right. This shelf has no room. There's nothing mm-hmm. I can do. And so many of us will do it when we're forced to. Right. Right. Um, but if if you want advice on making a plan about how to do it so you don't have to get to that crunch time, we would be happy to help you. <laughs> We've also put together a list of what some like really general guidelines are for the different Dewey areas in nonfiction. So you can be in the medical section. You should not have a lot of stuff that is more than five years old. Right. You may have an anatomy text or something like that, but you don't want the, the front pandemic information to be about 1918. Right. Yes. Right. Cause we've had other ones. Hmm. So that was actually what my next question was going to be. Do you have a suggestion of where people start if they should start in fiction or nonfiction? I think they should start whatever with whatever causes them the least pain. Okay. Because the the more you weed, the more fun it gets. And the more you're (laughs) like, yes, I'm getting rid of all these. Like the first time you weed, you're very conservative usually. And you're like, I don't know. Should I get rid of this? And by, by the time you get to to our age and level, you're like, that's no, that's no, that's no. I guess we'll keep this. We'll see if we can put it on a display and get it Mm -hmm. to circulate. But if it doesn't circulate, then it's out of here. So, you know, if you're a, if you're a fiction aficionado and that's like your child, then start with a nonfiction. Yeah. Because if it's, if it's painful for you to get rid of things, maybe have someone else in your library do it. You know, like if, if it's really something you can't do, farm it out to your coworker and say like, I can't, I just can't. Yeah. And work together, find something that is just appalling that (laughs) you cannot believe is still the case. And one of the things you can do is look at reclassifications because you have seen abortion go from an ethics issue to a social science issue to women's health. Right. There are those three classifications. If you find an abortion book in the one nineties, throw it away. Yeah. That's an old one. So readily available on the internet, the crew guidelines will give you, you know, your Dewey ranges and your general, if, if you don't have a collection development policy or if you're on your own, it's just you in the library. We know that that happens a lot here in Western Massachusetts. It's just a one person library. You can look at the crew guidelines and, you know, they'll tell you like, well, this is a science book and it's 20 years old and it hasn't circulated in 10 years. And that's pretty clear case that you probably don't need it in your library. And I think if I can play devil's advocate, but what if that's the only book about marine mammals that you have? I know the answer to this one. Wait, I, know I know the answer to this No, go ahead. It's not. You're wrong. (laughs) There are, there is interlibrary loan. There are other books on marine mammals. If you think that this particular 30 year old book on marine mammals is some kind of historic treasure, then it belongs. I was going to say, take it home. Oh yeah. Take it it home. home. Keep it for yourself. yourself. Right. And I, I also, I've said this to a very large room full of people listening to me talk about weeding. I can assure you that there is someone in your state or network or borrowing consortium who hasn't thrown it away. Right. So if you really need it, if you really need it, you're going to be able to get it from someone Um, because there's more than one person feeling like you do. Right. So we were recently talking to the Seattle public school librarians and, you know, that's a real question for them. Like school librarians would like to have something that they can give kids. Right. Because they want to spark imagination. Right. But 
if it is out of date, if it contains harmful stereotypes or mm-hmm. inaccurate information, then it is worse to have that book and be handing it to a kid than to have nothing at all and say like, you know what, we're going to go on the online databases together and I'm going to show you how to get there and I'm going to print you out a few articles that came out this year or last year. Right. Information that you can take with you. And that is way better than having a, a crusty ancient book. And in sorry to talk about school libraries so much, but in the case of school libraries, if you're trying to make a funding case, then getting rid of all of the outdate and gross books is going to make it look more like you need help with your collection than just having overstuffed shelves that no no kids want to use. Right. Because they know they're not going to find anything useful. Right. And I will tell you, I will promise you that your circulation will go up if your shelves are less crowded because they're easier to browse. That feels like magic, but it's not really magic, is it? But it's counterintuitive. It's like, if I don't have enough books, then I'm not going to have a high enough circulation. And, you know, I've been doing this for a really long time. And How long, Ellie? More than 25 (laughs) years. You don't have to say. Oh, just kidding. You already said it. That's okay. I'm fine. I'm fine. Really, I'm fine. We're not really recording this anyway. It's fine. (laughs) But it's true there. I mean, circulation goes up. You have place space for face out display, like out in your stacks instead of just one tiny table at the front of your library. And it people take stuff that they can see. Yeah, we do try to when we're when we're waiting, we prioritize getting rid of your old white guy creators and we prioritize keeping books by authors of color or uh, LGBTQ authors or other marginalized creators, even if they haven't circulated, we think that is a marketing thing that many libraries could work on. So if you're waiting and you're like, well, this is a really great book about the Negro Leagues and it's written by a black author and it just hasn't circulated and I wish it would. Well, then you can put it on display and you can hand sell it to people and you can help the circulation of that item and you can get rid of a lot of books by white sports writers from the 70s on the same topic. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I think that it's a weeding is a much better approach than performing a collection diversity audit you'd be better off getting yourself out into the stacks and getting rid of actual harmful materials rather than just going by both. some algorithm. But I don't think you need to pay a vendor to do, no, no, do a I, diversity audit based on BISAC codes. Yes. I think you need to get out there and throw away your racist books and continue to create inclusivity by purchasing. Right. Prioritizing it on, on the acquisition end. Yeah. So I, I want to, I'm not sure exactly how to form this question, but I want to ask you more about that because I feel like people will maybe hear a statement like throw out the white authors and keep the authors from marginalized communities and maybe balk at that a little bit. And can you talk about what you mean by that's a marketing thing? I mean, I'm being devil's advocate again, which is a really jerky thing to do, but what do you mean by it's a marketing thing or why is it important for librarians to do that? Okay. So the question of inclusivity or diversity of the collection has recently been re-upped because of 
uh, events in our country. And, you know, it should have already been a priority. But when you are waiting, often the the things that you're looking for, you know, in a book that's otherwise uh, unobjectionable is, you know, has it circulated or has it not circulated? Mm -hmm. So if you get a a pile of books that haven't circulated and you're looking for you're, you're trying to determine whether to keep them or not keep them. And one of the things that we say is to look for a reason to keep it. And if you, to take my, my baseball example, if you have a lot of books on the same topic and none of them are circulating and a lot of them are written by white sports writers of the seventies and eighties, there's no reason to keep those. If you have more recent books written by authors of color or just even more recent books written by by anyone and even on the topic of weeding and prioritizing inclusivity as you're weeding and as you're purchasing you are often looking at a shelf of books and you've got a certain percentage that hasn't circulated but some of them are in good shape or some of them are classics or some of them are some like your favorite book that you read in the mid nineties. And now that you've yeah. seen it, you know, you're going to hand sell it to one of your fellow middle-aged patrons. Then look at that and use your professional discretion to prioritize inclusivity in those things that you're going to give another chance. We, none of us goes through buy a list and automatically throws away every single thing that fits in this dusty category or has this, this particular condition problem as we're going through our collections. We make exceptions all the time. And so just be mindful in the exceptions you're making to prioritize inclusivity. And I am not telling you that you have to throw away Henry James, but I am telling you that people would rather watch Portrait of a Lady (laughs) than read it. (laughs) Well, I mean, if the, so the fiction collection can be difficult to decide when to weed because you know, nonfiction is information is out of date or whatever. And then you can be like, well, we don't need this medical book on pregnancy from 1965, I guess. Oh, God. Uh, but, you know, you will have your your complete set of Henry James's. And if none of them mm-hmm. have circulated, I am saying you can get rid of all of them. Ooh, yes, because, again, there's interlibrary loan. If something is not earning its keep in your real estate, then it doesn't deserve space it doesn't, it doesn't in your finite world of your building. It's it's a tough call, but now you can say, oh, those wild librarians on the podcast said for me to throw away all the Henry James. And you might not have gotten exactly the gist of what we're getting at. You have to use your professional discretion that ephemeral quality and what's right for your collection, right? Yep. I work in a very literate community across the street from a liberal arts college. And we have a poetry discussion group that meets every single week and checks out all of our poetry books. And they I check have, out my poetry books. They check also. out her poetry books because she's in the same <laughs> consortium. And nice. I have never worked in a quarter century in public libraries in a place where poetry moves like it does at the library I work at now. And romance novels just sort of like crinkle into dust, which is heartbreaking. But I also work adjacent to these other libraries where I can get every single romance novel that's printed on hold for my own needs because (laughs) I have people reading Bleak House for fun 
and I have to hang on to that. One of the things that we use discretion for is like local authors or local interest. And, you know, in Massachusetts, local can mean like Nathaniel Hawthorne. <laughs> yeah. Because there's a lot of, you know, Massachusettsy stuff. Mark Twain is just down the road from us in Hartford. And so right. Harriet Beecher Stowe. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. We are the birthplace of basketball in Springfield. So our basketball collection oh. is larger than many people's might otherwise be. So those are the kind of things that, you know, you know, your collection, you prioritize the stuff that you think is going to be important for your patrons and it's in your collection development policy write that stuff down <laughs> right i want to talk about cookbooks and craft books okay <laughs> <laughs> because part of me feels i don't want to say they never go out of date you know aesthetically they go out of date but like macrame is coming back it's back we definitely did not weed our craft books and so we have macrame books from the first time around that are now <laughs> super relevant. But what happens in those is that you open them up and they're, you know, they're black and white pictures and they're not yes. visually appealing. And so sure you can, you can keep them. And the people like us that did keep them are like, ha but I don't know that the people coming in for macrame books are going to be like, wow, thanks for this yellowed book with black and white pictures. That's really what I was looking for. And you'll see that in your cookbooks and in your, anytime you're looking at art books or even science books, when you flip through something and you have a bunch of black and white photos that don't really show you anything, I'm thinking about outer space books too. Right. There are newer, better printing processes that allow for the materials to be more relevant. You can find some interesting cookbooks where everything starts with a can of cream of mushroom soup. And while that gets Mm -hmm. right at my heart, it's not what a lot of home cooks are looking for these days. And when you find your Christmas crafts shelf and everything is made with red and white and Kelly green acrylic yarn, Mm -hmm. that's not the look that some of your patrons who are decorating their homes for winter holidays are looking for. Not popsicle stick forward. (laughs) Your your cookbooks are often, uh, they follow the trends of diets. And so there's going to be a lot of like keto cookbooks in five or 10 years that are just sitting on the shelf because that's like not a thing anymore. Right. You know, there are essential cookbooks, like you're going to have the newest edition of the joy of cooking Mm -hmm. or whatever on the shelf. And then when it gets gross or there's a new edition, you will probably buy it. But then the other stuff around that is more susceptible to whether it's circulating or not. Right. So let's say you finish a big weeding project (laughs) and you have all, and you have all the books in a dumpster behind your library and somebody sees it gets mad. Don't do that. Don't let them see. Okay. So how do you not let them see? So the first thing to do, if you're embarking on a big weeding project is to get buy-in from your administration. If you're a single librarian type of person, then your board of directors, make Mm -hmm. sure that they know what you're doing, why you're doing it. So that if there is public outcry, they can be like, this is why we're doing this and everything's fine. And to, if you're, especially if you're doing a big project, to know ahead of time what you're going to do with this stuff you discard. Like, are you going to try and resell it? Are you going to pulp it? Are you going to take it in the dead of night to the dump? 
you know, like just have a plan. Are you going to find an ex-library jobber that will sell it and give you a cut? There are a million things to do, but I, I started cackling earlier because you're never done weeding. Right. But the, the dumpster behind the library full of books should be avoided, as should great swaths of empty shelves. Yep. I mean, be creative mm-hmm. and remove the books from the top shelf and the bottom shelf and then widen the space between every shelf, just an inch for each shelf. And right there, you reduced your shelf space by 25%. That's what we did. It's virtually invisible that we got rid of so much stuff because of this particular sleight of hand, because you don't want to have those difficult conversations if you don't have to. But if you get Mm -hmm. buy-in from your leadership and your trustees and everybody understands what's going on, there'll be a lot more, oh, this is not a big deal. I mean, if you look at some of these materials, they're clearly not what you want your kids to be reading or whatever. Yeah. And what about staff? Have you had any pushback from staff about weeding? I So I had a lot less problem in my past life that was not in New England. Apparently in New England, history is a big deal. And sure, because they made it so... The, the main thing that I had to do was say, look, we have a local history room and a local history collection. You can keep anything you want in there and I will never breach the doorstep, but I'm going to throw away all of this stuff because it's not being used. And I still get stuff sent back up to me from tech services saying, well, these people lived in this town, three towns over for two years in the 70s. So we're going to count it as a local author and y'all should keep it. <laughs> okay, sure, sure, sure. So there, there is often staff resistance for any number of reasons. Yeah. Some library workers believe in the hallowed treasure of the book as artifact. Right. And some don't. And just sort of trying to like be cooperative and be as as transparent as possible in like what you what you're on about. Because, you know, I nobody wanted some area to be weeded because of uh, supply chain issues, like large print goes out of print very, very quickly. Yeah. I'm like, I'm just going through the collection and getting rid of stuff that's water damaged. Yeah. Like you can't really argue with getting rid of water damage in a library. It's kind of incumbent upon you to do so. Right. That'll help. I mean, that just going through and getting rid of water damage stuff, it gets rid of a ton of stuff. Oh, cat fight. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. The most librarian conversation ever. We just heard a cat fight. Just a little one. <laughs> So do you have a favorite example of something you've weeded that you like to throw out at parties? I was weeding a library collection in 2002. And yes, I realized that was a long time ago. The year was 2002. (laughs) So I was going through the history books and I found a book titled The Soviet Union Today. Oh, that's great. And so, and I was like, I was, what, 30? I had no idea when the wall came down because it happened when I was in college and I wasn't paying attention to things. And so I had to look it up. I'm like, okay, the wall came down in 1989. But you were sure there was no Soviet Union. Right. And I know there's not a Soviet Union anymore, but I was like, okay, so it has been more than 10 years. I need to let this go. And I, you know, I brandished it around for a while. And my other one was more recent where a student came in and was looking for information on South Africa. And I toddled over to the South Africa area, which 
we don't we don't have a lot of African history in North American libraries for good or ill. This has been something I've seen over the years. When you go to the 960s, there's just not enough there. And I found a book, a single book on South Africa in the library's collection. And I looked at it and it had a pub date that was more than 50 years ago. And it was talking about how apartheid was a really good idea. Hey. And I pulled it off the shelf. I had the students standing next to me. It's the only thing I have on South Africa. They're like, can't I have it? I'm like, no. 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 So it's important to weed. Yes. That's the gist of everything that we say. It's important yeah. to weed. Yes. Please do weed all the time. When in doubt, throw it out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the, the Soviet Union example reminds me of we were reading the reference collection while we were closed. We sort of reduced it from say three ranges of, you know, 36, 72, yeah, 72 shelves on each range to like 20 shelves of reference. And that was pretty fun. We got rid of a ton of stuff that was is otherwise available. And if you, if you were a public library and you're looking somewhere to start and you have a reference collection still, that's a good way to do some weeding that has very little impact on your public because no one uses a reference collection anymore except for those few things that you can keep, you know, in a ready reference near the desk. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of something now, something today, something this century. Contemporary. Contemporary, current. (laughs) Any of those watchwords, if you see them in a title, you can just check the pub date and be like, well, no. That's 1994 yeah. is not today's. And that's a general thing to do while weeding is just to remind yourself like, you know, the year 20, the year 2000 was 21 years ago. The year 2000 was 21 years ago. If it says 2011, that still means it's 10 years old. It's 10 years old. It's 10 years old. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of fiction as second chance over the years. And I've been like, oh, well, you know, it's only been out for five years because it was published in 2001. So I should leave it on the shelf. No. no. Oh, fic- but we were talking about fiction being really hard because you've got like the classics all the way up through. Harder, harder. The stuff can be harder for some folks, but you also can like open, find a book on your shelf that is by an author you have never heard of and you <laughs> mm-hmm. open it up and like the author profile or the flap is like, this incandescent debut by someone we are going to hear a lot more from like, mm, is yeah. just and that's the only book by that author is the greatest thing. And it was like published in 97 and you're like, by who? That's a candidate. But Aline, what if my patrons really like mystery series? Should I keep the whole series? <gasps> Thank you for asking, Anna. We did that in one of our first passes through fiction in the library I'm currently working in. And we were like, okay, well, we'll get rid of all of the stuff that hasn't circulated that's not part of a series, but we'll keep the whole series so people can read through it. And this goes against what our friend Stephanie Chase has always said, working in small libraries in New England in her past life. You keep the first two or three of the series, and then you keep the last two or three, and you get the rest through interlibrary loan if you have a patron who is a completist. So you wet their appetite with the first few and you can you've got the current ones for the people who've been reading them all along and then you procure the ones for folks who need them yep Um, i know that interlibrary loan is expensive 
but so is your shelf space. Right. So anyone yeah. who has a, a medium, small library, that would be the, the best approach is to, to not keep the whole thing, but definitely the first couple, because people like to start at the beginning of a series, if they're series readers, interlibrary loan is one thing, but also on, you know, ebook availability or e-audio. Mm-hmm. So in a pinch, you can be like, well, we, we don't have the third one right now, but it is available if you need to read it. Otherwise you can wait a few days. Yeah. All right. Well, that's about all the weeding time for weeding <laughs> talk that we have, which is too bad because I really kind of want to talk to you about weeding more because I miss weeding and I kind of want to weed somewhere. So if some library would like me to come out there and weed your collection, just please know I'm very good at it. Just trust me. (laughs) So we talked about weeding. We talked about books that are old and out of date, but I want to hear about some good books. So are you uh, either of you reading something really good right now that you want to share? Yes. We both participate in a variety of readers advisory roundtable type groups where mm-hmm. we all read the same book and then we talk about it and talk about its appeal factors and so on and in the genre of which it is a part. Yes. And so okay. we read the first Ilona Andrews in the let me see what series it is. The, Burn for me. Burn for me is the title and it's the first in the Hidden Legacy series. And I had never read anything by Alona Andrews, but I read the first one and I finished it, I don't know, like a week and a half ago. And I'm now on book four because I just kept reading <laughs> um, and I'm really enjoying it. The audiobooks are good and it's not heavy on the romance part, which, you know, it's, it's if you were if you went into it expecting a lot of sex and romance, that would be bad. But I was like, this is cool urban fantasy and it has feelings. So um, I'm very, I'm very happy. Yay. I have a 12 minute commute. And so I, it's really good for consuming dense nonfiction because I listen for 12 Mm. minutes and then I can process it for the rest of the day. And that was a very good way for me to read Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, which is world changing for the readers that I have discussed it with. And I am, I, switched to a romance after finishing cast and I'm currently halfway through you had me at Ola by Alexis Daria and it is adorable and there was a sex scene on my way to work yesterday and it was very good (laughs) (laughs) I'm not I don't like sex scenes on audiobook as much as I like to just read through it really quickly but it was it was a real good sex scene yes recommend Thank you guys. It was really informative and really fun. And I, you know, I'm happy that you guys are on the pulse of what's hot and weeding. Professional development is super important for library staff, but finding the time and the funds is real tricky. Booklist webinars are a great way to squeeze some continuing education into your busy schedule. Each free one-hour webinar covers something staff can take right into their work. Like what? How's about picture books, or sci-fi fantasy books, or craft books, or book group picks, or library management, or library reads? So many topics covered each in one convenient hour. Register to watch the webinar live, or to be notified when the video is up in the archives. All free! All just one hour! Perfect for those days when you only have enough time off the service desk to eat a sad sandwich in your office. Find upcoming webinars and archives at booklistonline.com webinars. Hi, Heather. Hi, Susan. How are you? 
I'm doing great. Okay, good. The hard hitting questions. Yeah. So let me ask you. Now you are our audio editor. So you do do you do most of your reading via your ears or do you have a pretty good balance of reading with your eyes? I do most of my reading through my ears, which I found on vacation this summer was actually kind of great because I listen for book list and I, you know, I listen to, to do my audio reviews and I listen to things that reviewers are saying are really great and things like that. And so when I pick up a print book, it feels different. And so my print reading really does feel immersive in a different way. And almost like I'm taking a break from my work reading, which has been, that's nice. Nice. Yeah. So I think in some ways, a lot of like I, when I was working in the library, a lot of time people would come in and get audiobooks for their vacations and, you know, to listen to while they're driving. And I kind of do the opposite now where I'll, I'll have the, the luxury of a print book on vacation. Yes. Oh, that's so interesting. Do you feel like you absorb things differently in print or in audio or? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I am not somebody who can listen to an audio while I'm doing a whole lot of other things. Like there are some people who plug in their earbuds and they can just go throughout their entire day listening to an audiobook. Mm-hmm. And I find that I can't do that. I well, I can, but then I'm not absorbing <laughs> exactly right. what I right. need to be absorbing. And so I it takes me longer to listen to an audiobook than you might think, given the quantity of audiobooks that I do consume. But I think that when I'm reading a print book, because I can't do other things at the same time, like I like when I'm mm-hmm. listening to an audiobook, it really does feel very immersive. And so I'll go through like this summer I read Float Plan by Trish Dollar. Mm-hmm. And I, I read it in like two sittings, which was super fun. Because you got to absorb. I got to absorb and it was a very perfect kind of escapist reading it hit a bunch of interests that I have like sailing and rum drinks. So oh. <laughs> it was nice. <laughs> so she writes a lot of teen fiction, but this is an adult mm-hmm. fiction title. So it's a, a romance, but it's the kind of romance that I like that has other stuff going on mm-hmm. and a really fun, interesting, juicy frame for the story, which I really like. So in this uh, circumstance, the main character heads off on a sailing trip by herself and soon realizes that she needs help sailing this boat that was her fiance's, but she's now by herself. So there's all kinds of detail about that. And there's detail about mapping where they're headed. She picks up a crew person who becomes the love interest. And that was really interesting talking about the different, the, like the culture of these little port cities that they would land in. It does something else with it, which I really enjoy in a romance, which is that the conflict between the two main protagonists is one of interpersonal connection. So am I the kind of person that can be in a relationship with you rather than some contrived external misunderstanding? Right. Or a storm tears them apart or something. Yes. Yeah. Those can be super fun. And I have enjoyed a lot of romances like that as well. But right now I'm really appreciating the ones that kind of find a way to puzzle out this, like, can we work together as a couple in an entertaining way? Right. Right. So anything else that you're listening to or reading that you're super excited to talk about? Something else that I've listened to recently that I thought it was just wonderful was Island Queen by Vanessa. Vanessa Riley. Thank you. Is that right? Yeah. Vanessa Riley. The only name that sticks in my head is Adoja Ando, 
who is Lady Danbury in Bridgerton. Yes. And she narrates it. And she just like bowls you over. She's so good. She's so good. And it's this sweeping epic of the story of a a woman who lived in real life Mm -hmm. and how she was born in, where was she born? She was born in the Caribbean in the 1840s and lived the first part of her life as an enslaved person and then eventually purchased her manumission and that of several of her family members and became a hotelier and a merchant and built this like empire and sent her grandchildren to study in Europe and all kinds of things like that. And Ando has this phenomenal way of aging the character oh, interesting. over the span of her life and brings in all kinds of accents because the Caribbean at that time was just such a meld of different colonial powers. Mm-hmm. And um, she does just a, a phenomenal job with that. And there's there's such power in her delivery. It was really great. It's probably the longest audiobook I've listened to this year. And I, I listened to every minute of it with anticipation for what was coming. Yeah. Also tropical. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's a sort of a theme, an escapist theme, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe you're like getting ready for Chicago winter. So you're reading warm weather books. <laughs> right. Stocking up on memories of sunshine. Yeah. <laughs> I also am reading Fever 1793 by Lori Hall Sanderson. I'm volunteering at a junior high nearby. Occasionally, I help the kids find books when their teacher is busy on library days, which is super fun. I really like that a lot. And they're all reading Fever 1793. So I'm going back to that because sometimes they have questions about that. So what's the, I don't know that one. That's by Lori Hall Sanderson. Sure. It's set in 1793. It was her first novel and it takes place during the malaria outbreak of epic proportions. Gosh. So yeah. Yeah. So that's not terribly enjoyable, but it's, she's such a great writer. It's good to go back to that one. It's a good one. Something else I started listening or started reading in print on my vacation is a David Sedaris collection, which is funny because I do feel like he's somebody that it's, his books are so, so fantastic on audio, but I've listened to so much of his that reading it in print, I I still have his voice in my head (laughs) for that experience. So that's been good. I've been a David Sedaris fan for a very long time, as I think a lot of people have been, you know, going way back to like the Chicago Christmas bit days that he would, when he would be on NPR. Mm -hmm. And then I, I loved his stories of learning French and being in Europe and right around the same time that he was doing that. I was, you know, I took foreign study and things like that. And so I felt this, like, it felt very resonant trying to communicate in a foreign language to me, but reading it now, going back to these earlier pieces and reading it now with, you know, 20 years distance, I, I feel like I'm seeing more of the sadness in his writing, which there's still like hilarious laugh out loud parts, but I do feel like I'm picking up on this like underlying emotion that I didn't necessarily notice because maybe I was laughing so hard before. Right. I wonder if that's also partially because even though you have his voice in your head, it's not, you don't have like his exact delivery in your head. So, you know, maybe he might, because I think of him as like really funny when I listen to them. And I I think you're right. When I read them, you do sort of notice that not everything is like hilarious, but when he's reading them, it is hilarious. So 
I wonder if that's the difference between, or that's just sort of one of the things that is different listening versus reading. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense too. And I feel like that's something that's really interesting about audiobooks and that people don't always, people who are not big audiobook fans, I think can perceive audiobooks as just a delivery method for the content, which it certainly can be. I listen to a lot more nonfiction than I read because it's convenient to, for me to consume nonfiction as an audio where like I have a book right now out called How to Talk to Science Deniers, I think is the title of the book, which is information I really want to have, but it's not, I don't find pleasure in picking that book up because of the topic. I feel like it's important information that I would like to, to, to have, but listening to it, I would have already gotten through that book because I would just turn it on and it would, it would tell me what I need to know. Right. But I do think that audio provides this. It doesn't just provide the content. It provides this whole other interpretive layer to the book, which I think is a really fun thing about audio. I, Eric Larson has his first novel coming out on audio. Oh, that's right. Actually, today, No One Goes Alone, Eric Larson's first audiobook or first novel exclusively as an audiobook. Huh. And I interviewed him about that and he pointed out that he always hears something different when he hears his books narrated, that the narrator brings another level to it. And so it's it's interesting to see how that happens and what we get out of the audio that maybe isn't necessarily there in print, or it could be interpreted differently depending on who's reading it. So kind of a fun thing. But they're both reading audiobooks and print books. Yep. They are both reading. Yeah. I, I had a conversation with somebody who was like, is it really a book if it's not a, on paper? And I, I said, yes, it is. And I explained to him why I thought it was that way. And it's a really existential question. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like what's the point of arguing about that when you could just be reading it instead? <laughs> <laughs> Like, are we arguing because you're you're super fancy because you've got the book in your hand, or is it really about let's let's get to the the juice and read the stories, and then we have those stories, mm -hmm. no matter how we got them. Awesome. Well, that's a beautiful sentiment to end on. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for chatting with me about what's hot in Heather's reading, and we'll have all the titles and authors and narrators in the show notes so everyone can take a peek at what they want to take a peek at. Awesome. Thank you, Heather. Yeah, thanks, Susan. Have a good rest of your day. You too. And that's it for this episode of Booklist Shelf Care, the podcast. All of the titles we talked about are listed in the show notes at booklistonline.com slash shelf hyphen care. If you like what you've heard, why not give us a rate and review? That will help other like-minded folks find shelf care. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.